Dr. Scott Cheatham is an associate professor in the Division of Kinesiology at California State University Dominguez Hills in Carson, California, and owner of Sports Medicine Alliance. Dr. Cheatham received his Doctor of Physical Therapy from Chapman University in Orange, California, and his Doctor of Philosophy in Physical Therapy from Nova Southeastern University in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Dr. Cheatham is a board-certified orthopedic physical therapist and a certified athletic trainer. He also holds several fitness certifications and is a certified ergonomic specialist. Dr. Cheatham is my guest today. What's up, everybody? My name is John Campioni, and this is the Rock Tape Podcast. I'm uh, sitting here on a, uh, for me, lovely snowy day, but since you're in California, Scott, probably a lovely sunny day. Scott Cheatham. Scott, how are you? Good. I'm doing good, uh, John. Thank you for having me. So Thank you for being here. Uh, you are a pretty important guest to us, I feel, because we do so much at Rock Tape to really understand the research behind a lot of the stuff that we're doing, and you are kind of at the forefront of a lot of really interesting research as it... Uh, as it pertains to rock tape and specifically to a lot of the soft tissue tools and things like that. And I've uh, gotten the opportunity to read uh, a few of the things that you've put out in the recent uh, past. And I'm just, I'm loving what I'm seeing because it's a lot of questions that I always ask myself and I'm not a researcher, so I don't get to answer myself as well too. So um, give us an idea, Scott, just about you. Tell us about uh, what you do, uh, where you're located, right now and how you uh, kind of started off into this healthcare world? Yeah, I mean, um, well, just kind of, I guess, just beginning with my background. Um, you know, I actually started off um, in athletic training with, um, you know, at uh, Cal State Dominguez Hills. And believe it or not, um, uh, Ethan, Dr. Kreisworth and I were classmates. So it's, it's pretty neat just to see how, um, you know, in the, in the late, yeah. mid to late nineties and stuff, we started off in that, you know, in the athletic training realm. And then, um, during that time I had a really good friend who, uh, actually got injured in a motorcycle accident. And I was introduced to a mentor physical therapist who actually rehabbed him back really successfully. So that kind of, um, gave me the, the push and the want to kind of blend athletic training with uh, physical therapy. So I ended up um, graduating Cal State Dominguez Hills, my bachelor's in athletic training and getting my ATC. And, you know, the, you know, most of us get our, like our strength and conditioning. So I did a few years on the tennis tour, you know, working with the athletes, which was fun. And then um, at the time I met my wife and met my amazing wife where she went back to, for uh, dental hygiene. So we were kind of in, a, in between. And then I ended up going to Chapman University for my DPT, my doctor of physical therapy. So that, um, so that kind of, um, that education I thought was good, you know, just like, you know, some of the grad schools like chiropractic and stuff like that, you learn so much, you know, so much information just in the graduate, graduate schools. So that had pushed me more towards continuing mm -hmm. my career in California in sports medicine. And so then um, during that time, I, I actually got into business with a group of physicians, uh, orthopedic surgeons. So I ran a huge ship of, um, 
you know, a rehab clinic basically where we had an interdisciplinary team. We had some chiro- we had, we worked with some chiropractic, physical therapy, occupational therapy. I hired an acupuncturist and a massage therapist. And it wasn't until I kind of, as you know, too, as I kind of started opening my mind more and getting away from that, those hardcore, you know, kind of blinders they teach you in school, you know, like, you know, here's the biomechanical yeah. way, and, you know, and everything. I started realizing how much was out there. So during the time of practice, I really learned a lot from the acupuncturist, Eastern medicine, and kind of opening up my philosophy. So that during that time, I started teaching part-time here and there. And for some reason, I kind of got the teaching bug and more of the research. So, mm. so you know, luckily I didn't get a divorce, <laughs> but but I, I did a PhD in between two kids. And <laughs> I'm going to go <laughs> so so just to be honest, I mean I have an amazing wife. Wow. Really. And she stuck with me. And I gotta tell you, and everyone I think on this podcast will <laughs> laugh. The minute I told her, hey, I want to start my PhD, she just kind of stared at me. I'm like, okay, you know, and so <laughs> luckily I successfully finished it. And um it was interesting because um I did a PhD in physical therapy, which is kind of rare. Most people will do it in like exercise science or rehab science. And there's only three programs in the United States that kind of specialize. But I decided for my dissertation that I wanted to kind of tackle the whole myofascial world. So I validated a palpation scale for fibromyalgia. So I kind of tackled the hard one. And gosh, I got to tell you, like halfway through my dissertation, I'm like looking in the mirror every morning saying, what did I do this? <laughs> so it's like, it was, just, it, it was just pretty crazy because, you know, fibromyalgia, you know, is those chronic mm-hmm. pain disorders, but it has a lot to do with the myofascial and the neuroendocrine system and kind of everything that, you know, everything that's foundational to rock tape and how we look at the human body is really part of all these chronic pain disorders. So that, that dissertation kind of pushed me further into studying more of the myofascial interventions that has kind of led to my research now, right? So that's kind of a, mm-hmm. kind of a you know, it's kind of a quick kind of trail of what I, what I did. And so, so during that time, you know, I got burned out, honestly, at the clinic setting. You know, I was seeing 20 patients a day running the clinic. Yeah. So, so about six years ago, I decided to, to go off on my own and do a concierge practice. So I do a 100% cash-based one-to-one concierge. And then now at my alma mater, Cal State Dominguez, I'm a full-time professor and researcher. So that, you know, kind of fast forward up till now, I have a blending of a clinical practice with research and consulting. So it's, I'm kind of living the life in my, in my eyes. It's kind of a dream for me. And I'm very humbled. I mean, I, I'm very well, blessed. With that. So. <laughs> It also sounds like it helps you really kind of manage it because, I mean, with research being uh, such a big job, your teaching, uh, I can, I can you know, speak to the experience with that too. Um, it doesn't leave a lot of time for you to be able to practice. So you seem to be managing it very well. Yeah, and, you know, the, the biggest thing I've learned about all this education that we do and all this research and, and practice and stuff. You know what? We don't know anything. <laughs> Does that make sense? We're, we're learning. We, yeah. I mean, John, we're learning every day, right? Yeah. So I'll do a research project yeah. or I'll, I'll talk to 
all my other super smart people around, you know, Capo or Ethan or some of my other friends, Maury and, and stuff. And they just give me ideas just by talking and then I'll go try mm-hmm. it in practice. Right. So, so I think, I think, I think we're yeah. in a really good stage right now where yeah. we're, we're seeing that blend. Very interesting. You say that you being a research duel about that there's like absolutely have to have you know evidence base for everything very clear-cut stuff then there's some that are a little bit on the other side about you know well we we don't have the time to do research on everything we just need to try it in clinic there's people in the middle ground you know do you have a stance do you have at least you know an opinion on that kind of being in both worlds and understand both both sides yeah, I mean, you know, I have, you know, in my opinion, there's two sides of me. The researcher tries to be evidence-based, and I try mm-hmm. to integrate the evidence as it relates to each individual client. And everyone knows, you know, especially those of us, you know, who practice an eclectic approach, there's not, there's not a cookbook, there's not a, a <laughs> Thomas guide for each patient. So mm-hmm. I try to integrate the research as much as I can. But I also realized the limitations of my research. It's never perfect. And I realized as a whole, we're lucky if we've proven what, maybe 40% of what we actually practice. I mean, honestly. Yeah. And that's, to me, that is a, I'm padding it a little bit, right? So, so for me as a researcher, I'll try to be as evidence-based as I can and, and answer questions. But as a clinician, I'm going to do whatever I can that's within a standard of care to get my patient better. And I know a lot of things that I do clinically work, you know, and then I also know that a lot of it's not supported a lot in evidence, but I know clinically it works, but I know that it's safe and I use professional judgment and it's it's within a standard of care. And um, as you know, too, from your background and everything, we're starting to see that a lot of the disciplines, chiropractic, physical therapy, athletic training, we're all approaching it now kind of from the same level, right? Get a move in, you know, get, you know, do your manual treatments you know, open up that neuromotor window, right? Stimulate change and start trying to get that plasticity and, and get them towards their goals. So I think, I think, um, I think, you know, I kind of call them the hammerheads out there. Those people are so evidence-based. To me, they're going to limit the tools that they have in their toolbox, right? You know, and right. I think that, and in, in my opinion, that's where you have to understand that there's, that, level five clinical evidence is still valuable. Everyone's yeah. trying to go for the level one systematic review. Well, that's just a bunch of nerds like me picking a question and, and criticizing other people's research. Honestly, right? You know, so, so it, the more research I do, the more, re, again, I realize I don't know anything. I'm trying to answer translatable questions in my research so that other clinicians can pick it up and say, oh, okay, if I lay on a soft, medium, or hard foam roller, I'm still going to get a neurophysiological response, but it's pain perception that has a difference. Little things like that, right? Just little simple things versus trying to hit a home run, you know? So that's just my opinion. Well, it's very comforting to hear someone who is a researcher and a clinician to say something like that is, is looking at the individual. We have to appreciate what's going on on the individual level, also appreciating that there is such a neurophysiological approach to it. And, you know, I feel like asking these questions, you know, we're very like-minded, but these are arguments that are going to go on until the end of time, I think. Yeah, agreed.
you know, there's, there's, there's never, there's always going to be three or four <laughs> sides of the story. But sure. as far as, as far as I'm concerned, if I don't get my patients better, I'm a loser. <laughs> I mean, just to be honest, I mean, that's, that's what it boils down to is that yeah. I love to treat patients and I'll never give up my clinical practice. So my research is helping me to find the answers I need to be the best clinician possible, but it changes with every single unique individual. And so the problem, in my opinion, with the body of research and a lot of things that we study is that there's so many mixed methods, there's so many different um, outcome measures, it's hard to compare apples to apples. So we just have to kind of, we just have to be good consumers as clinicians and then try to apply the research as we can to our individual clients and hope for the best. I mean, that's the thing is, is do our best for our clients. You know, that's what I tell my students all the time is ultimately that's what we're trying to do. We are trying to get our patients better. Yeah. And, and I agree. And, and in, honestly, who cares if I put out a bunch of research, if I can't use it and be successful yeah. with my clients. Right. I mean, and so, yeah. yeah. And, and so that's, that's where, um, that's where sometimes I think the arrogance in academia can overshadow a lot of quality, um, researchers and studies. Does that make sense? And I think sometimes, as you know, if you're in academia and stuff, you understand there's a, there's a ton of ego. And I, sometimes I think that that blinds people to really seeing what the research is. Right. And, you know, mm -hmm. it, so, and one thing, just kind of a side note, I would love for them to be a, a journal of null hypotheses. All the people who <laughs> screwed up the research, let's publish it so we can learn from it. Wouldn't that be awesome? <laughs> so. <laughs> that, would, that would be pretty cool, actually. Yeah, I mean, you, you make a really good point. Let's learn from it. You know, even if it's not necessarily something that people like, let's learn from it. It could be something valuable. Yeah, exactly. So, so again, you know, as, you know, as we go through and we learn, as we get older, you know, we realize that, you know, there's a lot to learn out there and we just have to just try to do our best for each patient. I think things will open up. You know? Absolutely. Let's talk about some of the research uh, that you've done is, uh, you know, you being friends with, with Ethan, uh, you are kind of helping out Rock Tape and doing some stuff that I don't want to say it's, you know, Rock Tape specific, but it's a, it's a lot of specific questions that we have about uh, a lot of our different tools. And um, one article that comes to mind, uh, and I believe this, this was published sometime last year, but looking at the quantification of Rock Floss band stretch. So, you know, Rock Floss was used in this study, but I think all bands, all uh, tissue flossing bands, there's a lot of valuable information here. And what you were essentially uh, uh, testing is uh, the, is there a way to, well, not necessarily is there a way, but uh, if, can we quantify the band tension and kind of determine is this much stretch going to give you this much amount of force? So uh, can you tell us a little bit about, you know, some of the different procedures and things you were within that study? Yeah, so it was interesting because when we looked at the flossing bands, as you know, when they when, when they kind of first came out with voodoo voodoo floss and 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 all that, you know, there's there's been a they went to market pretty quickly, and if you look at all the all the the guidelines and stuff, they were basically in essence just kind of doing almost like an athletic training taping where they kind of overlap fifty percent, they pull fifty percent, and then they did that. So, you know, the last couple of years we've learned a lot about you know 
blood flow restriction, right? Blood flow restriction, myofascial, you know, mm -hmm. compression and all this other stuff. So I wanted to kind of eventually do a series of studies to try to come up with some type of cutoff score or some type of cutoff tension of the band to determine if it's blood flow restriction or if it's myofascial. And so the, so, so the technical report we did was we first needed to quantify the, the tension of the band as we wrap it around the leg so that we can kind of quantify it. So then now that was our first study. So basically we took the, the rock floss two inch and four inch band and we took a strain gauge and we just, we kind of measured the different tensions. So our, our second study is we're gonna take those methods and now we're going to wrap the different pounds of tension or Newtons, whatever you wanna to use to quantify it. And then we're gonna have a Doppler um, at the ankle and we're going to try to measure where the blood flow the blood flow restriction changes and then that'll give us a theoretical cutoff point to see okay are we if we pull if we pull hard enough then we'll get some blood flow restriction to the extremity mm -hmm. and then or if we loosen it up enough we'll just get some mild fascial like that tangential shearing that we're theoretically thinking is going to happen so that that was that was going to be our second series as we kind of in summary is we wanted we wanted the clinician to have something quantifiable right especially for insurance reimbursement and and you know documenting change but also the yeah. two we want to find out well if you pull the band hard enough you're going to eventually occlude or restrict some of those venous and arterial functions right and so yeah. that's going to be our our study coming up this year is we got a just basically an audio Doppler. We'll stick it at the ankle, and we're we're gonna mark we're gonna mark the band at different links, and then we're gonna quantify where that cutoff score is, and then we'll run all the nerdy statistics to find out where that cutoff score will be, and then hopefully it'll be kind of a theoretical start for other professionals to like look at. You know, right now we're just gonna look at the quad, which is pretty pretty easy. You know, the lower extremity but we want to eventually get to all the extremities and stuff like that, you know? So that, that's kind of in short what we're kind of leading to, you know, and that's really um, cool. Yeah. And John, it's kind of interesting because, you know, we're kind of breaking new ground here, right? Because the flossing bands, it just, in my opinion, following your, your, your basic science and following PNF and stuff, it's kind of interesting because if we compress the myofascia on one side of the body, we're thinking, okay, all that afferent information is hitting up here. But when you wrap the floss around completely, you get a 360 degree compression. So the question is, is how is that neurophysiologically gonna affect it compared to like a foam roller, right? So then that's, yeah. that's something, yeah. And so that's, that's what kind of led me down the path because, you know, we, we look at, we look at the mechanoreceptors, we get all into the science, okay, great, but translating to the clinic, it's like, okay, if I have somebody foam roll, I'm seeing that that one muscle and with reciprocal inhibition, the other muscles kind of relax and you kind of get something after a couple minutes. But when I wrap the whole extremity, I get a, li a little bit more of a global effect that I'm seeing clinically. So I'm thinking, mm -hmm. I'm thinking to myself, okay, from a neurophysiological standpoint, 
and a mechanical standpoint, because you're wrapping up, you're, you're basically doing like a hard ace wrap, right? You're wrapping the whole, the whole thing. How is that going to affect it? And where's our cutoff, right? So that's, that's where I'm going to, so that's where, that's what kind of led me to my thoughts um, on this, on the rock floss studies, you know? So hopefully study number two, we'll find that cutoff value. And then hopefully we'll stimulate some other clinicians because I like to be eclectic. I, I hate for everything to come through my voice. So I'll hopefully I'll, I'll send it to some other people and then they'll start looking at more of the therapeutic effects of the different tensions and see that compared to like foam rolling or ISTM or any of our other myofascial compressions, how are they affecting our bodies, you know? That's really interesting. In this second study, will you be using uh, the different uh, um, the different widths, uh, the yeah. two inch and the four inch, or are you just gonna try it out with, one, with the two inch? You know, I, we're gonna do the two and four inch to stay consistent. So, you know, okay. so because, and we're gonna use the same methodology. We wanna kind of compare apples to apples so that when a researcher looks at it, they'll say, okay, here's how you quantify it. Here's your cutoff value. Go run with it, go play. So we want them to kind of play in the clinic. And we also wanna to try to find more of a, per, per se, poor, poor person's blood flow restriction because <laughs> the new kits yeah. are super expensive. And we, yeah. you, right? And so if we can pull the rock floss tight enough and get some blood flow restriction and then do some, do some closed chain active movements, shoot, that's great. But we just mm -hmm. have to understand it. So hopefully as we go down this path, the second study will, will um, unravel some details for us. But we don't know yet. I mean, it could, it could end up just nothing. But that's what the whole fun about research is, is we're trying to investigate new ideas. <laughs> You know. Yeah, absolutely. And I admittedly am not very read up on a lot of blood flow restriction therapy. Uh, I kind of know the basics, but specifically the companies that make and produce those cubs, cuffs, I'm not quite sure if they specify uh, any pounds per square inch or however they're measuring it. So it's always great to have this very specific information. Yeah. And I think too, if you're thinking about it, you know, as you know, too, from just from basic science, just in my readings of what I know, you know, obviously they're kind of using the philosophy of tourniquet time during surgery, right? You know, they're, they're cutting off blood flow kind of during that time. And, and then, but then also though, too, they're finding out that if you, if you occlude or kind of restrict, occlude's kind of a, you know, a strong word, but if you're restricting blood flow, and then all of a sudden you, you restrict it for a while and you let it go, somehow that stimulates the endocrine system and all these other growth factors, you know, so that's the theory. But the scary part is, is that with some of these, these kits that I've seen clinically, you know, health professionals of all different levels, fitness through, through licensed clinicians are using this, but there's not really a lot of safety guidelines. So that's what, that's what kind of concerns me because you know, surgeons will use a tourniquet time during surgery to slow down blood flow while they're in there doing, doing a joint yeah. surgery. So, so that's, that's kind of the thought. So, you know, that's where I want to come up with hopefully a, a safer method just in case. And then if you want to get, if you want to become more professional with these occlusion devices or restriction devices to be able to get trained in it safely, you know, that's kind of my thought, you know. I, I think that's so important is, <coughs> 
and I think kind of previous question I asked about, you know, people kind of arguing with the whole evidence base. I think one of the biggest things that comes up is the, the discussion of safety is, is what you're doing, whatever particular modality you're choosing, is it safe as well as, as is it effective for that individual? Yeah. And I, and I think at least, at least if we quantify some type of pounds or, and it's eventually if we get to a, if we get to a product where the hashtags are marked, they kind of measure the pounds, right? Yeah. And that might be a little bit more defensible for the clinician, right? Safety wise, risk management, you know, just to professionally talking, because if, if there is a side effect or someone does get injured, it happens. It's called, you know, rehab. Um, then you know that you have something that's evidence-based or at least somewhat like that, right? So, um, yeah. and I think that's important because um, I see a lot of products and a lot of, a lot of paradigms, people are jumping to them without kind of slowing down and understanding the safety, right? You know, yeah. so. Yeah, um, de definitely important. And kind of leading into one of the other uh, articles uh, that I, I loved, uh, that you worked on is looking at, um, I'll use this term, uh, uh, self-myofascial release, is uh, the idea of, of rollers. And um, one of the uh, uh, recent studies uh, that I looked at, uh, actually, I'm sorry, this, this one, I believe, is going to be published this month. It is the uh, roller massage comparing immediate post-treatment effects between an instructional video and self-preferred program using two different density type roller balls. I'll give it its full title. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, so, so this study was interesting because one of the first, um, when I started working um, like in the, in, before, before Rock Tape became part of M Plus, you know, and the whole company and stuff, I did a lot of research with Trigger Point, which is now part of the family and part of the Rock Tape family and part of the whole family. And so what was interesting is, is that that's where, in our research, if you dig a little bit deeper, we started finding out that the neurophysiological effect was, in my opinion, real. Because what we did was, is, is in, the, in, the early, in the early years, we compared a self-myofascial program with a video with, live, with a live instruction, and we had it professionally transcribed, the video and the live instruction. So, and we had a professional practice and all that. So we, when we compared them, all three methods worked the same way. The person, we, they, they got the same therapeutic outcomes from rolling on a device or any type of myofascial compression. So we realized, we realized back then that the neurophysiological response is a innate kind of a, a developmental response that the body does automatically and it doesn't care about our cognitive approach, <laughs> right? It doesn't care. If you push on the myofascia, it will respond. It's that simple, right? So, so when we're okay. doing all these, when we're doing the plethora of, of myofascial tools that we use, we're finding out that there's really no such thing as a release. That the myofascia doesn't get released. There's really no evidence to show that, that the self-myofascial tools do that. And so we, we realized that pain perception uh, has a lot to do with how your client responds to your interventions, especially your myofascial interventions. So that's why in some of our, in some of our other studies, we looked at using the, we validated the numeric pain rating scale to help progress people through foam rolling 
We also looked at different things. And so this latest study is we wanted to look at the little roller balls because it's a totally different shape, right? Okay. So we looked at, yeah, so we looked at the small roller balls and we looked at the MB1 and the MBX from Trigger Point. Yeah. And one was hard density, one was soft. And we came to the same conclusions that we've been coming to. And right now we're about 20 studies in, where we're kind of coming up to the same end of the road. It's kind of interesting where it doesn't matter if you do a video, it doesn't matter if you do it live or the person does it on themselves. Two minutes or less of rolling, you get some type of stretch tolerance, some change in the myofascia. You get a little bit of blood flow, so you get local mechanical changes. You also get this neurophysiological response. Um, we're thinking that two minutes or less of all this rolling or scraping or whatever you do, you're still kind of staying a balance between the sympathetic and parasympathetic. But then if you go, but then if you go two minutes or more, just like a massage that we get or whatever, you tend to relax more. And, and we're thinking that the parasympathetic system finally kicks on. And that's when you start seeing in the research decreases in performance, you know, decreases in muscle tension, stiffness, et cetera, et cetera. So, so this, this study we did recently, we wanted to look at roller balls, but we wanted to go back to the instructional video. We also wanted to go back to the self-preferred program. And we found out that even if it's live or even with the video, if it's more prescriptive and it really instructs the person how to do it, they still do better. Okay. So, 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 so to, so to kind of conclude is we kind of came to this, this finally, this, this consensus to say, okay, look, if you, if you compress the myofascia with anything you do, an elbow, a spoon, whatever, any tool, you're going to get some type of neurophysiological change. Locally, you're going to get a mechanical change, but, if you, but you, there has to be some type of one-to-one -one connection with your client to affect the whole neural matrix and to start getting in there and start pre-programming and opening up that neuromotor window. Does that make sense? You got to open yeah. up the neuromotor window. You have to. And so, so that's where I think when we look at the new, the new movement specialists, the new FMT movement specialists, and what Rock Tape is doing, the essence of that is trying to maybe use the myofascial tools in the beginning to open up the window and then start moving, start opening up those chains, opening up those, those, neuron, those neuronal chains and get things going. And so that's what we kind of concluded with this latest study is that, you know, prescriptive obviously is better. It's pretty obvious, but we just kind of came to that conclusion. So looking at some of the mechanical, uh, local mechanical changes, you know, one thing I, I saw within the conclusions was a lot of increased blood flow. Um, do you think that plays an important role in some of the neurophysiological effects that you found? Yeah, I think, I think as you guys know too, we've seen this from the post-exercise the post research like with DOMS. Um, we know now that lactic acid is our friend, right? It's not bad, you know, and stuff like that. So I really think that, 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 especially with the myofascial rolling and stuff, that we're, we're getting some type of pH changes, we're getting some blood flow in there, we're getting fresh oxygen, and we're really kind of part of that, you know, those three R's, right? Rest, restore, regenerate, right? So I, yeah. think, that, I think that the rolling 
is going to be helping with the whole regeneration. So I think that we are pushing out fluids. We got to move things around. And so, <laughs> and, and also too, though, there's been, you know, if, if a lot of, if a lot of our, our listeners here want to really nerd out, you can go on PubMed or just, you guys can email me. I can, we can maybe put it up on the blog or something, but the um, there's a lot, there's a couple of really good studies that show blood flow during and after rolling. And it makes sense though. You know, after you massage somebody, you get redness. So it's, we're not far from what we see manually with manual myofascial release and stuff. So, so John, you're right. I think we get a lot of therapeutic benefits mechanically, but I think everyone's excited about the neurophysiological, but we can't forget why we're doing it. And that's my biggest, that's, if you look at all my research, I'm trying to answer practical questions. Like, okay, if you roll on a roller, why? Because if every, if our treatments don't reflect our patient goals, then we're not going to get anywhere. We're not going to have the outcomes that we want. So all these great exercises we talk to, all these great interventions, they have to have meaning with every single patient that we prescribe them to. So I think when we look at the local mechanical effect, are we, are we going to be doing it uh, pre-competition or post-competition, right? Why are we trying to do it? So I think we're going to, and we have, some more, we have some more articles coming out talking about it, but we should be able to now with all the research determine in our practice, what is the best way to do it? Do we do it in between sets? Do we do it before it before um, exercise or do we do it afterwards? Um, unfortunately, when it trickles down to clinical practice, we're all so busy. Most clinicians default to their standards. Does that make sense? And we always kind of yes. default in the busy clinic. So my my soapbox for 2020 is to try to help translate this stuff into a busy clinic because clinicians I hear all the time when I go around the country and I talk. They always say, these are great stuff. I love the ideas, but how do I integrate this into a busy clinic? I only get 15 minutes per patient. How do I do this? You know, so I think, I think it's, it's a challenge for everybody to take all these great ideas, but sometimes having someone roll out for 10 or 15 minutes, that's 15 minutes of your one hour treatment. Does that make sense? You know, yeah. so I think, so I think we got to, you know, every clinician is, is, it's a challenge to find that sweet spot. You know, definitely. And, you know, sweet spots, a good, a, a good word for, for this too, is you mentioned before duration, uh, uh, talking about sympathetic parasympathetics and, uh, you mentioned two minutes. Did, did you find there's a particular threshold where you start to like lean into the relaxation and then up until that point, could it possibly be more, uh, pre activity, uh, kind of, uh, getting the tissue, uh, prepared for activity and with that also, did you pay attention to any sp uh, specific parameters like uh, rate or the speed at which someone was rolling? Yeah. So, you know, and this, and I'll kind of give you a summary and kind of answer your question. And this includes other researchers around the world that we collaborate with is that we found out that, that the, the, ner the nervous system is so sensitive, the speed of the rolling doesn't matter. So you can roll fast <laughs> or slow it's the, the receptors are still going to fire. So that's, that's the first thing we learned. And that wasn't my research. That was some colleagues in Europe and they did it at different speeds. And there's been a good three or four studies out now that have noted that. And it's pretty much accepted that the faster you roll, it doesn't matter. 
the majority of the research, especially in our systematic review we did and more recent ones, is using using that two-minute cutoff point. Is that they're showing that for a pre-event warm-up, you can do your dynamic movements, your sport-specific movements, but you can also roll. And if you do a short duration, somehow, and I don't know if it's at the spindle level or I don't know if it's at the mechanoreceptor level, I don't know where it's at, but there's some type of stretch tolerance changes in the muscles and the target muscle. And if you keep it short, the performance still stays intact. That's kind of the the consensus that we're seeing. But for some reason at over two minutes, the, the, the body tends to relax and subjectively the patient reports more being more relaxed. And we're seeing that pop up in the research kind of. So if one thing I challenge everyone who's listening to podcasts to try is that if you're doing your leg day, if you're working out, try rolling out, let's say if you're doing squats, I don't know, doing your squat movements, try rolling out 15 to 30 seconds in between sets and pick a muscle group. And I don't care if it's chicken soup or if it's placebo, I can squat deeper and my stuff can go to the grass if you know what I mean. My butt can go all the way down. <laughs> and I'm telling you right now, I don't, you know, it, I, I kind of look at it, and I'm trying to be the nerdy guy. I'm like, who cares? I can squat deeper. I'm an old guy, right? So, so I think people should try it, and it's kind of interesting to look at that cutoff. And so, I, you know, honestly, we don't know the perfect time parameter, but for some reason, you know, study after study tends to allude to this two-minute cutoff in between. So, you know, so hopefully that answers your question, but speed doesn't matter two minutes seem to be a threshold where the body kind of switches. Um, shorter's best, in my opinion, for pre-activity or interset rolling. And then post, make them relax, try to get the recovery, make them go parasympathetic, get them, get them to calm down, and just have them slowly roll out and just go slow and just get a deep tissue effect. That's, that's kind of my opinion. You know? See- with that being said, too, if, if speed doesn't matter, you could even just uh, sit on the roller and let the tissue kind of relax as well, too. Could you not? Yes, actually, yes. And we're, we're actually going to be looking at that this year. We have a study slated where we're going to be looking at different products. And some of the products actually stay in one area and kind of rock back and forth. Okay? okay. So there's a roller that came out that rocks back and forth compared to slow rolling. So we're going to look at different methods. But then again, though, if we go back to our manual myofascial research, we can't we just do sustained compression and still get more relaxation? Yeah. That's a theory, right, manually. But we don't know if, we're, if that works the same with body weight on a device. So we're going to try and look at that. Yeah, that's kind of one of the, one of the areas. So with that, with body weight too, another thing you looked at, looking at the MB1 and the MBX, for the, uh, any of you who uh, aren't you know, paying attention to the boxes when you buy these balls, the MB1 is the green foam ball uh, for rolling. The MBX is the red one. The MBX red ball is much denser, so it's a little bit more firm. And this is something you guys looked at as well too. And uh, I'll ask you to talk about that, but also, um, also ask the question about depth. You mentioned how speed doesn't matter from what you you have uh, been seeing, but what about depth and then also the density of uh, the device that you're rolling with? (laughs) Yes. So um, 
so depth depth is a is an interesting concept and that's one aspect honestly i don't know yet but looking at okay. if you look at if you look at some from, from some of the classics like stecco and schlepp and all all of our great myofascial researchers there's different parts of the body that have different densities of myofascia right and also too there's different parts of the body with different receptors so I'm, I'm almost thinking, and I don't know this, because I'm like you, I do a lot of manual therapy. We've studied all the different paradigms and stuff. But I'm telling you, sometimes the lighter I go, the better effect I make. I don't know about you, John, but I think the consensus is. But sometimes I think that the myofascial rollers might actually be going too deep. I think sometimes mm. they're going to be pushing past the whole myofascia into the muscle belly and really kind of affecting the spindle maybe something differently i'm not sure you know i don't know if you know depth is going to make a major difference because body weight seems to be the standard across all 120 studies on rolling but also though too if you use a roller stick which is a lot lighter pressure right um yeah. you know we're seeing that so i'm not sure yet if the depth is going to have an effect but physiologically it does make sense though that the deeper you go, you're gonna compress all those tissues almost too much. So I'm not sure yet, I don't know yet, but I, I would like to try to find an answer for that eventually because um, it would be interesting to look at that. Um, and so your other question is, is gonna be on the density, is that correct? Yes. Okay, so, when we, so we did two studies that kind of went hand in hand, we, we did, now, also too, just to kind of, for our listeners too, we just got to kind of premise this a little bit. Um, basically, all the studies we've done was on the short-term effects because we're, we're finding out that the nervous system will recalibrate itself or go back to threshold or baseline after about 20 or 30 minutes. It makes sense, right? I mean, the, the nervous system will always kind of go back. So a lot of the myofascial treatments we do have to be done in a serial fashion over time to make plastic changes. So the, the myofascial stuff that we studied first have been immediate changes, okay? So within 10 or 20 minutes, basically. So that's important for the, I think, for the listeners to understand is there's not much research that have, have looked at that yet. The only reason is, is because most of the researchers on, on these myofascial interventions, we all kind of agree that we need to learn how the engine works first. Hmm. So now that we kind of know how the engine works, over the next five years, in my opinion, the people I collaborate with, you're gonna be seeing a lot more longitudinal studies, okay, now that we understand these effects. But the last five years have been a lot of questions that we've been asking on saying, okay, how does the engine work? And so now I think we have enough research to come up with the mechanical and neurophysiological where it's gonna guide us more long-term. So on that premise, we did two studies looking at roller density so the stiffness of the roller and we also looked at the surface and they go they go kind of hand in hand and so what was interesting is is we found out that a soft medium or hard roller have the same post-treatment effects in in joint range of motion and pressure pain threshold um, among all three they all have the same effects so it was interesting and so that again gave more evidence and more evidence as far as I'm concerned to state, you know what, the neurophysiological effect works 
but the nervous system is so sensitive, if you press light or hard, you're still going to get a response. Okay. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting is, is the moderate density foam roller or the grid, the grid, the grid medium, the orange grid had in about 10 of our studies had the best outcomes. So a moderate density roller seems, it's interesting, I know. So, and, and that, and so that opened us up when we're looking at the trigger point grid to say, wow, you know, the moderate density seems to be most comfortable for people. And somehow this moderate density roller with the ridges, right, with the ridges is stimulating people across all studies. Because remember, we, we independently recruited for all of our studies and we randomized, we did all this nerdy stuff. So we're seeing all these different cohort groups have similar outcomes with the grid roller. So we're thinking that maybe a moderate density, somehow people like it better and they're responding better. That's kind of in short. And again, we don't know anything. I mean, this is what we're, this is what we're presuming or we're kind of trying to extrapolate. So I thought that was interesting. And then that led us to our second study is that we looked at the roller surface pattern, right? And we looked at, we looked at smooth versus all these rigid rollers versus the grid pattern because the grid pattern has, was so effective in our earlier studies. And again, we found out that these multi-level rollers um, have a, a stronger, um, more statistically significant post-therapeutic effect than a smooth roller. So, so, so basically we came to the conclusion that you need to use a multi-surface level roller, moderate density to even all densities tend to, tend to have the best outcomes for, for people. So it's kind of interesting. And again, those are, those are, those are our immediate outcomes. Those are right after treatment, right. which most of the time we work, that's our, that's our practice too. So yeah. we're going to, so this year we're going to try and look at more longitudinal outcomes to see if we do like a three a three to four week program and see how long that lasts. It's interesting, and I apologize if I didn't uh, catch this, but I, I'm speculating in, in my mind why the grid is different than just this, a smooth roller. Mm. Well, what I'm thinking of is, it's kind of like, you know, if I can, you know, it's kind of like there's more surface area with the grid. Does that make sense? Because, because of the ridges and the, the peaks and the valleys, I'll just talk plainly, the peaks and the valleys and the ridges, there's gonna be more surface area. So I'm thinking that the myofascia is gonna be, you know, kind of gonna get, gonna get pushed into all these little crevices as it's rolling through. And then you're gonna kind of make all these little dents, all these little compression dents. And so all these little different shapes that we see with all these rollers, <laughs> especially like like the rumble roller with these big knobbies and all that i think we're stimulating yeah. all those mechanoreceptors in so many different ways it's creating this greater effect because there's all this we're having a a larger stream of afferent information coming from the brain coming up to the brain from those rigid rollers so, and it's more novel too yeah, and, and plus it looks cool. <laughs> I know I'm kidding. Yeah, too, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know what I mean? Whatever. You know, color's cool, right? We always like all those bright colors. So, but yeah, and so, but what one thing I want to kind of, if I can share for a second to readers, it's kind of interesting, is that this, the, the whole multi-level surface roller 
actually came from a study in the early 2000s and they only had six people. Can you guys believe that? They had six people that they actually used in data collection to show that the rigid rollers. So we had a whole N of six <laughs> start this forest fire of everyone using all these multi-level rollers. So it's interesting how evidence-based is based on six people. <laughs> I mean, honestly, right? So then, yeah, it's kind of it's kind of interesting. And so when you look at some of the old <laughs> research, they they didn't really have a large sample size to like re really generalize. So then that's when we started redoing some of these old studies. But those researchers were on, man. They found we found all the same stuff that they did. And so basically, this has kind of led us to as far as like exercise prescription. Basically, you just you start somebody off with the roller that they feel comfortable with, and then you just progress them through the different densities, right? Mm -hmm. And then you can use, and then if you're going to chart their progress, just use the numeric pain rating scale and give them a give them a discomfort number for each muscle group. So, like, if they're going to roll on the hard one, say, you know what, I don't want you more than a four out of ten when you roll, so that they don't get injured. Does that make sense? Yeah. Excellent. Very cool. So, man, a lot of stuff to unpack there. Really cool uh, new stuff that you guys are going to be coming out with. Uh, I'm, I'm curious. I, I'm hesitating maybe to open up this can of worms, but uh, I, I could listen to it all day. But have really you not. looked into uh, or, even, <laughs> or even considered uh, uh, doing any research on, on it's very popular now is these percussion guns. Yes, we, um, we are attacking the monster, <laughs> as, as everyone says. So this is another thing that we talked about. Oh my gosh, it's like, it's like it, they're in Best Buy now. Can you believe it? What? Yes, yes. Dr. Campion, I'm getting, I'm getting my kid a new computer and I'm seeing the Hypervolt and the Theragun <laughs> in Best Buy. So when you go to Best Buy, you're cool. <laughs> I'm just kidding, but I know. So, so same thing like we talked about. <laughs> I know, it's crazy. So these tools go to market with no reason. <laughs> Amazing, right? So yes, we have a study coming out. We, we did a survey study. Um, I think maybe some of our, our um, our podcast listeners might have took it, but we did a survey study on the um, on the devices just so we can understand clinical practice patterns because we didn't want to start doing research with because I have a, we have a relationship with with Hypervolt and then hopefully with TriggerPoint we'll we'll test the new the new TriggerPoint device which is cool too. We 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 wanted to get we wanted to check the market out first, look at practice patterns. So we have that study going to be, um, it's in review right now. So hopefully it'll be one of the first survey studies out right now. Um, Trigger point told me that I think some of the guys there that the device just came out. So that's going to be new. Um, I know Theragun from, from there, they have like six studies being done right now. So the research is coming for that. But we wanted to, to do a study based on practice patterns first. So our two, our two studies we, we're going to do, hopefully, is number one is 
we're gonna study the therapeutic effects of the different speeds, the different percussion speeds, number one. Number two is we wanna study, the ther study the therapeutic effects of the different tips. You know, the plunger tip, the ball, the fork, and all that. Yeah. So I think, I think we wanna go there because, okay. yeah, because we, we wanna answer like just practical questions, you know, so. Right. Very cool. That'll be very exciting uh, to kind of see. And I've tried out that, uh, that trigger point uh, uh, impact percussion gun. And I, I love it personally, but I haven't had too much experience playing around with a lot of the other uh, brands, just, you know, handfuls of tryouts here and there. But I've always been curious about those. And when I see something kind of gain the popularity, that's the first thing I think of is, you know, what is, uh, what are some of the different effects that have been studied and looked into? Yeah. And what's interesting is, is a lot of people kind of like with the vibrating, like we did a study on the vibe, right? The vibrating roller. And obviously everyone oh, right. knows. Yeah. And obviously if, <laughs> if everyone knows that if a device vibrates, it's going to make more changes. I mean, it, it makes sense. But people were using the whole body vibration research, which is totally off. It's totally different. Oh, yeah. Yeah, because whole body vibration is your whole body's moving, not local yeah. vibration. Two totally different concepts. Well, people were, some of these manufacturers, at least the ones we interfaced with, they were trying to use like the vibration research for the, for the percussion therapy. So I'm like, no, 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 you're, you're impacting the myofascia super fast. Yes. And it's completely different. Now the mechanoreceptors yep. might, yep. might read it as vibration, which is fine, but it's too fast. It's a very fast, repetitive motion. I... Oh, I've been thinking about that for a while, um, honestly, because I've seen some people, they talk about vibration therapy and they're using the guns. And I, you know, I was, I, I, I chalk it up to maybe I'm just misinformed, but I was always like, I don't think that's vibration. So I've asked people, you know, with the different guns, is this vibration? And the, the best answer, it's it really just uh, ask more questions, is it depends on, on frequency uh, of, of how that, that's happening. So I've always been curious because people are starting to use that when they discuss vibration, but I didn't think those were the same things. Yeah, I mean, and, and again, in my humble opinion, um, when, you, when, you, when you look at the whole body vibration, they use it, like you said, in frequency or hertz, right? But it's, it's, it's a larger amplitude and you have a vertical, mm. you have a vertical component and a horizontal component. So you're on a plate and it's vibrating. Here you have a device with a small contact point, right? Usually the tips are averaging maybe one and a half to two inches across, and you're basically punching the tissue. Completely yeah. different concept. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I just was just talking plainly. Yeah. I just thought you said punching the tissue. And I'm like, that would be a good name for a new one. It's called the, call it the tissue puncher. Do totally, you know, and yeah, um, <laughs> <laughs> I agree. We'll, we'll go to market with that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, that, that's really interesting. That's really cool stuff. I, I'm, I'm excited to see what you have on the horizon and what's coming out. If, if anybody wanted to reach out to you, uh, on either social media or if they just had some basic questions for you and your research, how can they get a hold of you, Scott? Yeah, you know, they can reach me, you know, through through <laughs> Facebook. I'm I'm with the Rock Tape, um, you know, Fit Fit Pro um, group, yeah. so they can definitely reach me there. 
or if you guys want to reach me at my email, my university is S Cheatham. So it's S C H E A T H A M at C S U D H dot E D U. Or they can look me up. I have a private website called Dr. Scott or just Google me or whatever. And then they can contact me, but yeah, I would love to collaborate with anybody who would like to, you know, have, you know, look at some of our studies or if they have questions and stuff, because again, you know, the more ideas I can foster, the more questions we can answer and the more we collaborate, because like we talked about, you know, we're on the same boat and, you know, I'm a clinician at heart like everybody, but I always love to have new ideas for research, you know? And so if some of our listeners out there have ideas, yeah, please reach out to me or just, you know, put me on Facebook or whatever, any media or, um, you know, give me a call or text me and then we can collaborate because I think that's great because the more great minds we have working, that's why I love rock tape so much. And what Capo and the whole team has done is that they bring together a lot of eclectic people and, and we're all in the same boat. We're all humble and we all share ideas. So yeah, if you guys have ideas, please let me know. And then hopefully we can bring some of those ideas to life, you know, through our research. So. Absolutely. Very cool stuff. Scott, thank you so much for uh, taking the time. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Thank you, John. And thank you everyone for listening. I appreciate it. Thank you so much from Dr. Scott Cheatham. Uh, Scott and I actually discussed after this interview if he'd be willing to come on a little bit more frequently and discuss some of the research that's available with uh, a lot of the great things with rock tape and some of the other stuff that's found throughout rehabilitation. So look for more from Scott Cheatham coming very, very soon. just want to say thank you again for tuning into the Rock Tape Podcast. Uh, I appreciate you listening, and I just wanted to send out a uh, quick apology. This past weekend, I was scheduled to be in Idaho to teach the Movement Specialist course, and I did not make it out. Unfortunately, we had to cancel that class. Uh, Pretty bad situation whenever, you know, I can't make it out to something like that. That is the only time that has ever happened, and hopefully the only time that has ever happened, but um, we had some issues with plane maintenance, and then a storm came in in Chicago, and there was no possible way that I could have made it out there, uh, and I had my wonderful wife, Christina, uh, Jody, Allison, Steve, Ethan from Rock Tape were all kind of on text messaging, looking for flights, trying to get me where I needed to be, trying to fly me into a place where I could drive from, but I was not able to even get out of Chicago, and by the time I would have ended up where I needed to be, it would have been way too late. So I want to say a very, very heartfelt apology, and I'm sorry to the people in Pocatello, Idaho that were looking forward to that course. We will reschedule. If it's me or if it's not me, we will reschedule and make sure that you guys get that movement specialist course out there. So once again, I definitely apologize for that. It's not something we do often, but it just could not be helped this time. Thank you guys so much for tuning into the Rock Tape Podcast. Please keep an eye out every Wednesday for a new episode. And please check out our associate link at knackbags.com for picking up a brand new knack bag of your own. This is the only bag that I use. I love this bag for travel. It fits everything that I need. Use the promo code ROCKCAST. That's R-O-C-K-C-A-S-T to pick up your rock, uh, sorry, to pick up your knack bag and take some pictures. Tag me on it. Let me see how you're using your knack. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. I'll see you next time.